Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the news driving the latest polls in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. So you guys have been doing a fantastic job with your micro assignments. And so the one last week which was a great one and folks should keep doing it, is to submit the show to NPR's earbud.fm. That's their new platform that they're using to curate the best shows. And obviously in the podcast world, public radio is a big driver of podcast listenership. So we think it's pretty important. If you haven't done that, please do so. We have lots of links. It's super fast. But today we have an even easier micro assignment because today the theme is Twitter and it's Thanksgiving and we don't want people to work that hard. And maybe you're in an airport or who knows where you are. Maybe you're at your family's house and you don't want anything really heavy to do. So this is super easy. And that's just to tweet a recommendation to the show. But you also have to tweet a link. That's the trick, right? Not just, hey, the pollsters in the ether. You have to tag us and do a link. It can be a link to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or SoundCloud, whatever. We'll have lots of links in our Twitter feed, which is at the pollsters or on Facebook. Again, that's the pollsters. So you could send that out and, you know, get us into your circle and your network. Um, so and then we'll also give you a shout out. So don't forget to send us a photo and we'll give you a shout out. Um, we have gotten one. I know lots of people have done the micro assignments, but we've only gotten one photo. And that's from Ty. Thank you, Ty. T-Y to Ty. And uh, and also, since the theme of the day is Twitter, we're going to read a little review from iTunes from Snappy Cat Daddy. <laughs> I love these names. <laughs> Aren't they great? So Snappy Cat Daddy says these two are incredibly talented pollsters and journalists. We're not journalists, but that's okay. We'll take it. Plus, they always answer Twitter questions, and we do. And the theme of the day is Twitter. And in fact, we're going to have someone from Twitter who's going to be answering Twitter questions. Uh, and another fun bit of news, uh, I was trolling around uh, iTunes looking at for other political podcasts that I might want to listen to because um, listening to my own show feels a little weird. Uh, and they have a whole curated section of 2016 po- um, podcasts in iTunes. It's all, you know, red, white, and blue and election themed. And I clicked on it and there we were right on that front page as one of the, the recommended 2016 podcasts. So. Yeah, it was pretty fantastic. So welcome if you were sort of new to like, hey, 
what's 2016 all about? How can I catch up? And I'm going to go to CNN and NPR and PBS. Those were the other top recommended shows plus ours. So we were really excited. Thank you, iTunes, if you're watching. iTunes podcast staff, if you're listening. I guess you're not watching. If you're watching, <laughs> that would be scary since we're in a very – call is coming from inside the sound booth. It's a very, very tiny sound booth uh, podcast hoarder's closet. So anyway, what are the top lines? This week's top lines. Um, Americans, they oppose ground troops in Syria, are frustrated with the situation and how we're dealing with ISIS, and are apprehensive about refugees post-Paris. We'll also take a look at a controversial British poll about supposed jihadi sympathizers that made headlines and got serious methodological blowback for its proposed uh, purported studying of the Muslim population in the UK. On 2016, the Dem side is a little bit sleepy, and on the Republican side, Donald Trump appears to have benefited the most politically over the last two weeks. We will dive into the latest numbers. Uh, People don't like government, surprise, surprise, but they're also not anarchists. We'll look at some new polling on what people think government should do and what they think government is doing well. We'll also study what millennials are thinking about issues like free speech. Um, Most millennials say they're willing to ban free speech or think that government should be in the business of banning it. We will talk about what those numbers mean. Adam Sharp from Twitter will join us to talk about the new Twitter polls feature that you may have used if you are a Twitter user, um, as well as what we can learn from monitoring Twitter discussion around things like presidential debates. And finally, on a few fun notes, we'll look at polling on Adele. Spoiler alert, everyone loves Adele. And Americans agree that mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie reign supreme as Thanksgiving side dishes, but partisanship infects everything, including views on turkey pardons. Oh, that's sad. I know. That's a sad one. Story of our times. I know. I Do you know. approve or disapprove of pardoning turkeys? Ugh. Do you approve or disapprove of Obama pardoning turkeys? Ugh. Totally different results. Yeah. No, I know. That's a sad. <laughs> that's sad. Um, but in actually, truly sad news. We still see news about the um, looming security crisis in terms of ISIS, refugee crisis. There's been a lot of polling since our last uh, show last week. Uh, the first poll that came out that really made a lot of waves on this issue was the Bloomberg Politics and Seltzer poll. Remember, Anne was a guest on the show a while back. Uh, it was great having her uh, a few months ago. And this poll showed that a majority of Americans say uh, we shouldn't take any except any Syrian refugees into the U.S., and only 11%, however, I suppose this could be the good news, say we should have a religious test. You know, there's been some language on the right that we should have a religious test as we look at this. Um, it, nonetheless, I think, and this was the point that Kristen was making, is that you have a lot of Republicans under attack for some of the language they're using when it comes to the refugee crisis. But maybe it does, in fact, track with where voters are. Yeah, there was a pretty good um, column by Kevin Drum at uh, Mother Jones, which not a site that I as a Republican read all the time. But um, it was it was pretty good. And it sort of made the same point that I think we, we kind of made on the show last week, which was, you know, sort of snark about this issue at your own peril. You know, that, that even that people who are saying, hey, maybe we should be stringently vetting these refugees or maybe we shouldn't be letting them in that rather than a kind of, you know, hateful minority that actually represents a majority of people. And so the Bloomberg poll came out. I think I saw it like an hour after we recorded the yeah. show last week. It came out right after the show. Um, and then since then, Fox has done a poll where they, they they framed it a little bit differently. They framed it with the word Obama in the answer. But, you know, the Obama administration has proposed letting in all of these refugees. Do you support or oppose? Um, 67% said they opposed letting in the refugees. But in the same poll, they then said um, – do you think it is acceptable or shameful to apply a religious test to refugees? And 64% said they viewed it as shameful 
to apply a religious test. So, you know, there, there are more, there's multiple facets to this issue and the public opinion on it varies if you're talking about the refugees overall in kind of the abstract or if you're talking about specific things that should be determined, that should determine whether someone is or is not allowed in. And what we do know is that there's going to be a lot more focus on this issue. There have been a lot of polls. We won't rattle through all of those that show that there's a huge amount of uh, stress that voters are, are placing on issues of security. That may be temporary. I mean, that's going to be evolving. It may, by the time the election rolls around, I guess, depends if we're talking about the primary or the general, it may settle back down to sort of where it normally is, which is certainly far below things like the economy, healthcare, education, kind of quality of life types of issues. Um, and then, you know, the it, it does seem that Clinton does better than some Republican rivals in terms of hailing of terror, um, at least in, in some polls. I think it's the Washington Post ABC poll. But there have been other polls on the primary and the Republican primary showing that Trump does better with Republican primary voters. Is that what you saw? That's right. So the ABC Washington Post poll had a ton of data on this. Um, first, they, they asked about people's attitudes on Obama's handling of the issue. And he's sort of underwater on approve, disapprove on handling of the threat of terrorism. He's um, for 40 percent approve, 54 percent disapprove. Uh, on the Republican side, then, when you ask these Republican voters, who do you trust most on terror issues? Trump is atop that field at 42 percent. Um, Jeb Bush comes in second at 18 percent. It's the issue on which Jeb Bush does best. But again, 18 percent still dramatically trails Trump's 42. And we've seen in other polls that people, Republican voters, tend to associate Trump with strength, that that's one of the words that they, they associate with him, that when you say who would be a strong leader, people pick Trump. And so you're seeing, you know, there was a big question, is this story, is this Going Is this new climate going to benefit or harm Trump? Are people going to go, well, gosh, now it's time to get serious. Trump is an entertainer. I don't want him. Or will they say Trump is strong. He's going to fight the bad guys. He's exactly who I want taking on ISIS. The polls seem to indicate the latter more than the former, that Trump has not seen a decline in his support in the last week and a half. And if anything, it's been Ben Carson, we'll talk about in a little bit, who's who's struggled more um, over the last week and a half. Right. And I guess what we don't know, and this is qualitative, but I guess you could do this as a quantitative exercise. Are are people responding to Trump, as Kristen said, the style of Trump, like I'm going to take him on, you know, pick me, I'm, I'm the tough guy. Or are they responding to, are they aware of some of the specific things he said, like about waterboarding and closing down mosques and things that are, 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 you know, sound very extreme. Yeah. And and I think another thing that will influence this is this question of where does the, the Republican Party has had this debate for a while about sort of the freedom versus security that under the Bush administration, you had the pendulum swing way towards security and kind of away from civil liberties. And then post Bush administration, you've had the the, the Rand Paul faction sort of gain a little bit of strength. Um, so ABC Washington Post has asked this question sort of but if you had to choose between the two, would you choose to sort of thoroughly investigate security threats or don't intrude on privacy? Like which of those two should be the priority? Um, in the summer of 2013, when the Edward Snowden revelations were sort of in the headlines, um, you had privacy was chosen by 39 percent of respondents, which is sort of a high watermark. That's now fallen back down to only 25 percent, while 72 percent say, I choose to investigate security threats, sort of putting civil liberties maybe second, which I think is a climate that favors Trump, given that so much of his rhetoric and the things that he's kind of proposing really stretch 
they, they trample on civil liberties right. in a big way. Right, right. And, you know, they, these kinds of questions, they're useful because they are measurements of the values that people have. What value do they prioritize. What they don't do, you you really need to do both simultaneously, is ask about the specifics. Like, okay, what about this? What about this? Give some examples of what that means. Um, in the abstract, it's, it's easier for people to say, investigate security threats without having to face the music about what that might actually mean. Yeah. And that's why on a question like that, I think the trend line is what's most interesting because overall, you can have that overwhelming chunk of people say, Security, when really there may be a lot more latent support for civil liberties and pr- protections than is showing up in that question. But watching how it trends over time is really interesting that in the aftermath of a tragedy, you suddenly see a big shift from where we were when Edward Snowden was – those revelations were coming out and revealing to people things they may not have thought before about the way that their privacy was or was not being intruded upon. Right, right. And then, you know, the other thing that I worry about from the left watching this whole dialogue is that does it does it you know fan the flames of fear in a way that's harmful to uh, to tolerance. It's harmful for us or being able to live uh, amongst each other. And you can see in England um, some of the same kind of concerns in a poll that came out there. Uh, the Sun newspaper did a poll of British Muslims and the headline said one in five Muslims in England sympathize with those who would go to fight uh, with ISIS. Now, a lot of this became a controversy, it became a polling controversy, came a political controversy, became a question wording as well as methodology controversy. I mean, I think this also comes on the heels of polling having a bad rap in the UK after not calling the election correctly. You had YouGov. Remember, we had Anthony Wells. We should have tweeted him, see what his thoughts saying. We wouldn't we're not going to do this poll. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Um you had YouGov was approached by The Sun to conduct this research, and YouGov declined. Um, they said, you know, they didn't want to do the poll because they didn't think that they were confident that they could accurately represent the British Muslim population within the time frame and budget set by the paper. Um, their spokesperson said, you know, that, that it would cost, you know, tens of thousands of phone calls, cost of tens of thousands of pounds to generate the statistically representative sample. Um, I wonder if what was happening at YouGov was they saw the intent of this research and kind of were like, oh, we can't do – I mean I've been in situations before where somebody's approached me wanting to do a project that I'm not crazy about what the research is supposed to be used for. And right. so it's sort of the nice thing you can say like, oh, I don't know that I'm – I'm probably not the right pollster for you. And it sounds like YouGov did that. Servation, however, was and- a pollster that said yes. And so part of it is controversy around the methods, that they were trying to survey British Muslims. And the way they did it was by sampling from lists, targeting people by last names. So do you have a Muslim surname? And I've heard of this happening in the U.S., too, that when people are trying to target um, Hispanic voters, that they'll pull from lists that are targeted based on supposed – Hispanic last names. Right. And that has a lot of, you know, problems with it, of course. Cause it's cheaper, but you end up, because you're obviously not calling everybody, um, but you end up including some people in your sample frame and maybe you screen them out. I don't know if this poll, I don't think this poll actually asked, are you Muslim? So you don't, they weren't able to screen those people out, but you should have an intro screening question to make sure people are 
supposedly, you know, who they are, who you who you want them to be. Um, and so it's OK. At least you're you're not going to include non-Latinos or non-Muslims if you ask that question, if you have a, uh, a surname dictionary. But you're missing all the people who don't have a Muslim last name who may be probably in England and other places more assimilated because they've married or they're second or third generation or they changed their name or what have you. There were also a few a, a lot of sort of big quibbles with the interpretation of the data. So the headline, one in five British Muslims sympathize with ISIS, um, digging into the questionnaire, it doesn't seem like that headline is necessarily borne out by the data, that the question was worded something along the lines of, um, do you sympathize with those who are going to Syria to fight or those who are fighting in Syria? And you could, that doesn't necessarily mean ISIS. Some people are saying that could mean they're going to fight for the moderate side. I mean, right. Syria is a tough situation where there's lots of bad guys and very few good guys, depending on how your what your worldview looks like. Um, but but the, the the question didn't specifically say ISIS or right. extremists. Right. It just said people fighting in Syria. And so you can have sympathy for people fighting in a war. Right. Exactly. And it says young Muslims who leave the UK to join fighters in Syria. So, I mean, the young Muslims who leave the UK, you could have, you know, just feeling bad, like, oh, these poor guys or women who are roped up into a bad situation and you know, are roped up into something that, that they shouldn't be. I feel badly for them. I have some sympathy for them as a fellow Muslim, as a fellow person. It doesn't mean that you agree with them and that you too would go do that if you, if you had, the, uh, had the option. I think given how incendiary this question is, you had to make sure it's completely, completely precise. I mean, the other thing too is we don't know what sort of the language, maybe it's in here, I, I don't see it, like the language is at all, I guess all conducted in English. I don't know if that changes things too. But uh, Yeah, well, and, and the, other, um, the other issue is, you know, it, 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 not only does the data not necessarily support the conclusion, but of course the headline we see this with polls all the time. The headline is much more incendiary than the data. And over in the UK right now, the, I mean, there's there's a big challenge because there really is a serious extremist challenge that European countries have to face more even than the US. That right. in the US, we don't have as many like big pockets of people who have not assimilated as they do in Europe. At the same time, you know, this is really inflaming tensions over there. And there a number of the colonists criticizing this poll were saying this is just going to inflame pre-existing tensions and put more sort of innocent Muslims who do not identify with ISIS um, sort of in the crosshairs of, of, of hate and frustration and anger from people who see this poll and start lumping everybody into the same boat. And they also pointed out that they've asked this that same question about do you sympathize with people going to fight in Syria um, to non-Muslims and have found that it's not just Muslims who sometimes will answer yes to that question, sort of suggesting what like what you said, that the reason why some people answer yes isn't because they like ISIS, but it's that they're, you know, there's Ben Page, the chief executive of Ipsos Mori, who he gave a quote in this article saying, the main issue with this poll is the reporting, um, which made it appear that one in five sampled supported ISIS, when in fact they were expressing sympathy with people fighting in Syria, which could include British ex-servicemen fighting against ISIS and the Kurds, or anti-Assad Muslim forces who are also fighting against ISIS. That it's it's a yeah. much more complex problem that is not well studied by the one question that was then the headline question. Yeah, yeah. So if you know you want to look at and look, we're going to talk about race now in the next question, right? And and Trump got into some hot water by retweeting some you know wrong factoid that you know inflamed inflamed the various racial tensions that are going on in Trump world. He had you know 
an unfortunate violent incident, one of his um, one of his rallies. And so if you're looking at data and sort of passing it along as a fact, when it comes to these kinds of issues, I think the moral of this story and this whole section of polls is to really make sure that you're being extra careful what you're looking at, because this is getting really touchy. The question wording, it makes a huge dramatic difference. And are the polls and the headlines, the question wording, are they perpetuating um, stereotypes? Are they perpetuating conflict in a way that's not helpful? And it's one thing to study. I think it is important to study controversial issues. Like in the Fox poll, one of the questions they ask is, you know, do you think that we are at war with radical Islam? This is a controversial question, right? This is a big debate. Should should we be identifying the the should we be identifying ISIS as radical Islam or should we just be identifying them as terrorists? Should we bring religion into it or not? I mean, these are controversial issues that I think it is important to study. But this British survey thing in particular shows sort of really raises questions about okay when you poll on controversial subjects by the release and framing and reporting on the data. Are you further inflaming things and making them worse? Right. And, there, you know, we'll joke on this show about troll polls every so often, but like doing a troll poll about Justin Bieber, which we will get to in a moment, <laughs> um, is very different than a poll kind of that has the potential of really inflaming sort of racial, ethnic and religious tensions. Right. And relatedly, um, this past week, or I guess this was yesterday, uh, there was an incident at a Black Lives Matter rally in Minneapolis. Um, that is getting a lot of attention. Sounds pretty tragic. There's a CNN poll, um, uh, CNN along with Kaiser Family Foundation poll that shows uh, nearly half think that racism is a big problem, a very big problem in our society today. And that's an increase from where it was in 2011 and an increase from where it was in 1995. That raises really interesting questions about, is it that America is more racist today? Or is it that people are more aware of racism today? I mean, kind of the promise of President Obama when he was elected was, we're going to move into this post-racial America, we're going to heal tensions. Is part of the healing process sort of becoming more aware of the problem in the first place? I mean, that seems to me to be a lot of the discussion of the last two or three years is, is, is it that America has become more racist? Or is it that we are now putting more focus and spotlight on things where previously the Confederate flag issue right. being a perfect example, right. where previously people would have said, oh, I don't think this is racist. And then we saw the polls move where all of a sudden people went, oh, maybe this is racist. Right. Is it a diagnosis issue or are there more people actually, you know, suffering? Yeah. So that's the thing we don't know. So next, we're going to talk to Adam Sharp from Twitter. We're very excited to have him. Hi there. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the pollsters. How's it going? Going well. How about you? Uh, things are going great. We are so excited to have you on the show. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Uh, if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit about what it is you do, what your role is at Twitter, um, and sort of how you wound up at Twitter in the first place. Oh, well, that's a long story. Um so the short version is I lead our news, government, and elections team. So this is the team that works with journalists and news organizations, elected officials and agencies, and then candidates and their campaigns on how they use Twitter. We are not lobbyists. We are not salespeople. Our entire job is to help these highly visible users of the platform use it better to communicate to their their readers, to their viewers, uh, and on the political side to their constituents and, and to voters. Uh, I've been at Twitter about five years now, uh, hitting my anniversary, as they say, later this week. 
coming from a career that was pretty evenly split between news and politics. Most recently, two years at C-SPAN, and before that, uh, five years on Capitol Hill. So as I, I think you and I have talked about before, and as I know we've talked about on the show before, polling is evolving. And one of the new sort of ways people are looking at approaching studying public opinion is monitoring social data. What are people saying on Twitter or Facebook or what are people searching for on Google? Um, and I know at Echelon, you know, we we look at Twitter a lot as a great way to gauge what activists are saying, what influencers are saying. Tell me a little bit about what you think Twitter can tell us about public opinion and how Twitter data fits into this world of polling and, and studying what voters are thinking. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, it's important to note Twitter data is not going to replace polling anytime soon. Mm-hmm. You know, the same way as satellites never replaced thermometers in telling the weather forecast, the more tools we have, the easier it is to create a story out of a very complex ecosystem. Um, I like that satellites and thermometers thing. I'm going to steal that from you. (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, I think, though, it does have an advantage in that we are not asking a specific question. You know, one of, I think, the drawbacks of, of polling is that you really only get the answers to the questions you choose to ask in the first place. Whereas with Twitter, you're listening to real just organic conversation. We're taking those conversations that in past election cycles would have been at the water cooler or the coffee shop and bringing them out into a public, instantly measurable uh, place. And so I'll give an example from the last Democratic primary debate there in Iowa, which we partnered with CBS on. There was a moment when uh, Secretary Clinton defended taking contributions from Wall Street bankers by invoking 9-11 and her work to rebuild lower Manhattan uh, after those attacks. And we could see in real time in the control room and viewers watching on CBSN could see through a visual we had on screen that that was handily the most tweeted about moment of the debate. You saw a massive spike in what we call tweets per minute of people talking about uh, that moment and reacting to to that moment. So we knew right there and then this was the moment that was shaping people's conversation and their reactions to the debate. The fact that we could then go immediately into that conversation and see what are people saying and seeing that many were being very critical of her tying 9-11 to those contributions, that then led a path to a follow-up question to her that came from Twitter. We also, going into that debate, saw how just the environment around the campaign had shifted in that conversation about the candidates going into Friday, the day before the debate, had largely been around climate change, education, race issues, and the economy. And then as soon as news broke about those attacks in Paris, you saw the campaign conversation shift dramatically. All of a sudden, national security and foreign affairs which had been less than a fifth of the conversation going into that day, were now 80% of the tweets about these candidates. And so it gave us an instant snapshot of how that conversation was changing among the people who were going to likely view that debate. So how do you help um, candidates, political groups, leaders, uh, government uh, agencies sort through 
the representative issue of Twitter, right? That the folks who are on Twitter tweeting about an issue are usually the most polarized, the most extreme, the most informed, and are not necessarily representative of the full electorate. I mean, how, how do you sort through that? Well, I think that can be an advantage as much as uh, an occasional hindrance. You know, when when I first started Twitter five years ago, we were right at the peak of the debate on Obamacare, for example. And when we dug back into the tweets from the prior summer, that summer of 2009, where you'll recall a lot of members of Congress had gone home to their districts to do town halls in the summer recess and no polls were showing healthcare as a top three issue at the time. And yet they're going to these town halls and being bombarded uh, by people upset about healthcare uh, as an issue. And so that's an example. And we've seen many since where sometimes having that more activist voice um, can be that early warning, a signal to uh, elected officials or to news organizations that this is an issue that's bubbling up because you can actually sense it within those influential communities. And when I say influential, I don't mean influential in the sense that someone is a pundit who's going to be on cable news that night. Oh, you're saying that us cable news pundits aren't influential? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Kristen is better on Twitter. I'm kind of like, you know, when I first learned to drive and I'd get nervous at like the on-ramp, you know, you're like, wait, it's so moving so quickly. Like, I'm still, I still have a little bit of that. See, I'm I'm the opposite. Adam Adam just, we were tweet. he was tweeting at me the other day because I confess that I took the Twitter app off my phone last weekend because I was driving too fast mm, on the highway. In your analogy, I was using it too much, too addicted. To, I, I can't spend my weekends constantly like, oh, I haven't looked at my Twitter app on my phone fi- in five minutes. Like that's that's not a healthy way to live. Everything in moderation. I think Kristen and I are meeting in the middle because I'm definitely tweeting. I know this. I know you didn't ask us for our true Twitter <laughs> confessions, but <laughs> I guess we probably get that a lot. Like at parties, like you're the doctor at a party and people are like, hey, look at my knee. Well, but the, the other thing. Oh, oh, hey, Adam, how's it going? <laughs> Going okay. Looks like uh, Skype failed us there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we were all like exercised about our our Twitter use, and uh, then all of a sudden we heard the like. <laughs> I know we figured you hung up on us because we started talking about ourselves <laughs> instead of talking yeah. about the the cool stuff you guys are doing at Twitter. You know, sort of getting back on track. I mean, one of the things that. I wonder about because I'm so addicted to Twitter uh, and using it so much is do I ever get caught in the bubble where I start to think that the things that the frequent tweeters in my feed are talking about, like that that's reality right. when that is a slice of an interesting audience, but it's not representative of reality. And I mean, yeah, I heard. So I was listening to another podcast with two Top reporters, this is a top political podcast. These are top folks who I would have thought would know better. And they were talking about a candidate's television ad. And they said, well, it just seems kind of old-fashioned for them to have an ad. I mean, Trump is doing well, and he's just on Twitter. And so maybe the other candidates need to be doing more of that, which to me just showed like a complete being completely out of touch with how voters work and operate. And obviously Clinton has been running ads and, you know, she's in lead. I mean, none of it made any sense. So, uh, so how do you get people to kind of think outside from that, that fallacy, that problem? Well, I think two, two things. Number one, uh, I would note, you know, we looked at the data from several of the primary debates uh, so far. And one of the things that 
we've noticed is each of these debates has generally generated millions of, of tweets. And we asked the question, you know, is there a bubble? Is there, you know, a facet here where all this conversation is coming from a handful of people uh, in Washington and, and New York? And one of the positive things we saw there was that every single verified account, so taking into account every single verified journalist, politician, news organization, more than 30,000 accounts in, in the U.S. alone, made up less than 1% of the conversation about these uh, debates and, and the campaign more generally. Now, that said, when you look at what, what tweets get the most engagement, have the most retweets, have the most reach, then obviously these start to, to rise up a bit more because they are the ones that have that more established off-platform brand that give them that reach, that credibility, that, that audience to, to amplify their message. Uh, the second thing I would say is, is just going back to the conversation we were having uh, before we were cut off, which is that you know, one of the challenges in polling is always, and differences between different polls, is how do they define a likely voter? How do they define yeah. you know, someone who's actually going to turn out? And so the fact that we are looking here at an audience that is very engaged, that is taking the time to speak up and have their statements known, um, I think does mean that if anything, we over-index uh, for that more active population. And surveys we've conducted uh, through more traditional methods in the UK, Canada, and in the US have all shown that Twitter users are significantly more likely to vote significantly more likely to participate in a campaign. Margie, we got to figure out how we're going to get verified on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want the little blue check mark. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm only half. Kidding. I think I need to do a little um, bit more tweeting well, for but, anybody to care if I'm verified. You or need not. to tweet more. I need to tweet less. <laughs> then we can we can reopen this discussion. the The other thing that. I, I, so I think your point is is right on the money about Twitter being a really valuable way to study these highly engaged populations. I can't tell you the number of times I've had clients come to me and say, like, we want to study opinion elites. We want to study, like, Beltway insiders. And that's a hard population to survey well. So given that it's really hard to get a statistically representative sample of Beltway insiders because, like, what the heck is a Beltway insider anyways, studying what, you know, the – 5,000 people on Twitter who most look like Chuck Todd, our guest from last week. Not physically, but like in terms of who they follow. And to, We're not just looking for people with, with the facial hair. We mean it more broadly. But, you know, the, the, the 5,000 people on Twitter whose Twitter activity and follows and followers look the most like Chuck Todd's. You know, right. that – okay, that's an interesting universe to study – to see what Beltway Insiders look like. The other new fun tool that you guys have is Twitter polls, which we have to ask about. Yep. Uh, tell us a little bit about the origin of Twitter's new do-it-yourself uh, you know, in-tweet in polling mechanism. So one of the things we, we saw a lot of users doing was asking questions of their followers and trying to get a response. And the same way as... Users essentially invented the hashtag by trying to find a way to string common conversations together. Users invented the retweet because they needed a way of redistributing. Users essentially invented this concept of polling your audience. And we saw a lot of different ways of trying to 
hack that into the Twitter environment. You saw people saying, you know, tweet with hashtag this if you feel this way or hashtag that or retweet for yes, fave for no. And so that was the impetus to give people a model to be able to right there in the composition window of Twitter, say a new tweet, ask a question, hit that little pie chart, give a a couple of choices uh, to choose from and be able to get instantaneous response and voting, if you will, from their followers. I love it because even though it's not, I mean, as you, when it came out, the day it came out, I was like, I'm so excited about this. Also, this is totally not scientific polling, but I can see someone like Donald Trump completely abusing this. It's only two categories. (laughs) I've seen some with four categories now. I think I've seen some with four categories. Adam, am I hallucinating? How do we get a four category Twitter poll account? That's our next question. <laughs> there, you, you've probably seen some experiments out there, and I would just say stay tuned. Okay. But, um, but you are right in that uh, they are not uh, scientific. It really is just putting out a question, and whoever wants to, to answer answers it, which gives it a lot of the same drawbacks as, say, web polling. But there are a couple of dynamics that I think help improve it. One, the fact that it isn't scientific and no one is – putting that extra import on it, it actually discourages some of the effort it would take to try to game it. We do only provide, uh, we only allow one vote per Twitter account. So if you did want to stuff the ballot box, um, it would require creating multiple Twitter accounts and, and, and logging in and out of each of them to go vote on that poll again and again. So the fact that people do see these as somewhat lightweight uh, in that regard actually has the impact of making it seem also not worth the trouble, especially when you see when a more visible account tweets a poll, uh, like a news organization, it's not uncommon to have tens of thousands of responses to that survey, meaning that if you did want to skew the result, it would actually be a significant commitment of time and energy to do that. (laughs) You'd have to really want it. Uh, I like it because I'm able to do uh, very – like light touch polls just like on the fly if I want to just pull my friends. Um, so for example, last uh, Friday night, gearing up for a real exciting weekend uh, and my husband was trying to decide which of the new video games that came out he wanted to get. Did he want to get Star Wars Battlefront or did he want to get Fallout 4? And so oh. he just posted a Twitter poll as like a way to get you know feedback from his you know our, our fellow nerd friends like which video game should I Star sp- Wars? No, we actually got Fallout 4. It's been pretty cool. Walking through like wasteland. And is that what the people wanted? I don't remember what the result of his poll was. And he has, I think, a smaller – he has a smaller follower base than me. So I retweeted the poll. Not sure how that affected the results. Mm. But, but anyhow. Kristen's but husband you, is not poll-driven. I digress. I digress. <laughs> but you did touch on there you know, some of the ways that uh, you do add some extra validity to this data. Number one, the fact that it is so time-based, that it is an instant snapshot, that you can get – particularly for a more followed account, thousands of responses in a matter of minutes. So it limits sort of the time frame in which someone could organize an attempt to skew it one way or another. Another way is you're essentially creating a defined sample group by choosing what account this is tweeting from. You noted that if your husband tweets it, but you hadn't retweeted it, then that the profile of that group would have been different than if you did retweet it. And so for certain accounts, if someone has a very distinct profile that has followers of 
um, uh, a similarly distinct profile. You know, if you are a high profile conservative or high profile liberal whose followers tend to be of the same uh, political view, you're tweeting that out to an audience that is already sampled for one particular slice you're looking for. And perhaps that initial response that comes in the first few minutes before it has fanned out through the retweets is going to be your strongest signal. And if it is a big account, so you're looking at thousands or tens of thousands of responses, some degree of um, law of large numbers comes into play. So another question that, that Margie and I had sort of put down that we're interested in exploring is the question of kind of, you know, free speech versus harassment concerns. And I actually read a really fascinating story last night that I would encourage our readers to take a look at uh, that was all about the granddaughter of the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church, which is that church that protests military funerals and, I mean, just incredibly offensive stuff that that this granddaughter she had been sort of their social media presence and it was you know tweeting all of this like really hateful stuff but would engage with people on twitter and through her engagement with people on twitter wound up like converting away from the church and running away oh, that's and like moved her? now like goes and speaks at like you know jewish community events to talk about like wow I, so i was really hateful back then and that like the twitter actually expanded her horizons and wow. like changed her. It's a fascinating story. I would encourage people to look at. There was another similar story. I think it was This American Life from a few months ago where a woman was con who wrote about feminism was constantly getting hate tweets all the time and she was used to it. But one guy did a fake account uh, from her recently deceased father that he had dug up the fact that her father just died and did this like horrible, hateful stream of tweets toward her. And so she reached out to him and he apologized and they had a meeting and she wrote a piece about it. So that's a similar, you know, Twitter converts, you know, sort of anonymous hate troll. Yeah, into... like in one sense, it's this like hateful wasteland, but in another sense. But then it can convert you. So what, what's, what's your thought on that? Because it seems like, I mean, as the guy who who helps oversee so much of campaigns and politics on Twitter, I mean, you've got to see all of the harassment and incendiary remarks and all that back and forth. I mean, what, what's your take on that? So right off the bat, for the typical user of, of Twitter, um, the most important thing we do is make sure they have a way of reporting bad behavior. We want Twitter to be a safe and enjoyable community for, for everyone, and that's why in, in the recent year we've launched the ability to basically write from a tweet, writing your timeline, the ability to report someone for harassment or abuse. Most of the people my team work with, though, are – highly visible public figures who are somewhat used to uh, provoking a negative reaction from, from members of the, of the community. <laughs> but I think one thing that's interesting, and, and you mentioned the story about uh, the woman from Westboro, um, is that because of that truly public nature of, of Twitter and the ability to be exposed to different viewpoints, I think that's where there's real opportunity for dialogue as, as as that story demonstrated that you know this isn't a platform that is dependent on just taking your offline circle uh, of relationships and bringing it into the online space it's about connecting around shared interests and so that's why sure you might only follow people uh who you already know or that you're interested in or, or that you agree with 
But that retweet button can be very powerful because that retweet button is where ideas tend to jump from one group to mm -hmm. to another um, and where, you know, you may be following someone because they're a friend of yours or because uh, they're an actor uh, and, and you watch them on on TV. But because of their retweet of something that interested them, you are now exposed to a new viewpoint, a, a new thought. And that's one of the reasons why during events like the debates and, and during the campaign more broadly, we do look at things like the number of retweets that a message gets and by extension of that, the number of impressions, how many people actually saw that tweet because that's where we can get a signal of the reach of a message. And then when we look at follower growth, uh, which would signal people wanting to hear more from that uh, candidate or people now actually tweeting in response, now this starts to form a, a picture in real time that would be very difficult to do in polling where things tend to be binary choices. Are you supporting candidate A or B if the election were held today and so on? You don't detect that subtle movement of I'm still supporting candidate B, but I'm becoming a little more interested uh, in candidate C. Uh, an example of this from the last Republican debate, the undercard debate, if you will, over the course of that debate, the follower growth for Chris Christie was 10 times that uh, of any of the other candidates as, as a sort of percentage of where they were to begin with. And that's a signal that people heard in the debate, something that interested them. They might not come out of that debate and say, I've changed my vote, but enough click that follow button as if to say, I want to hear more from this guy. Well, great. Well, Adam, thank you so much. That was really helpful. And of course, what is your Twitter handle so folks can follow you and see what you're up to? Sure. I'm at Adam S for Adam Sharp. And you can also follow our team at at gov, G-O-V. Awesome. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. This is, I feel like I'm seeing you everywhere. I think last time I, I saw you on TV was during the UK elections, doing the analysis there for um, one of the networks, whichever was the network that was easily easy for us Americans, <laughs> uh, American political, international political junkies to watch. Yep. Seeing your face uh, on TV the, was a lot of fun. So, <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, it was the good folks uh, at ITV um, who had us there that night, looking at what people were tweeting about on election day, and again going to um, uh, some of what we talked about before. One of the interesting things that night was seeing the moment the race was called for conservatives the massive spike in conversation around the National Health Service that immediately as that call was made, the conversation switched mm. from election results to what happens next and how does this impact the NHS. And the fact that we could see that based on tens of thousands of tweets at 2, 3 o'clock in, in the morning, <laughs> I think captured uh, some of the utility here for using Twitter in the context of, of political research, at least to give you an idea of okay, this is how the conversation's changed. This is where we're going now. And maybe this is what we should be asking some more questions about. And of course, thanks to my former employers at C-SPAN who were simulcasting ITV that night so you could see it. Cool. Well, thanks again. Thank you both. Have Cheers. a good one, Adam. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, that was good. That was really good. Okay. Now, do we want to... Let's take this out. That sounds a little okay. better. And maybe we want to cut some things. 
Uh, I'm fine cutting... We'll do 2016. I'm fine doing millennials really fast. Yeah, we could do millennials fast. Do we still uh, want to do this? Maybe we want to cut this... Um, I think when government it, thing, on or the, do we need to do it? I, I think on the government thing, there's that one... These This chart is the most interesting. A major role for government. Everyone feels they're losing. But I, rather than, um, like, the... the People hate politicians. I mean, we talk with we have polls about that all the time. Are people That's angry true. at government? Do they hate politicians? Yes and yes. So I would I would say let's focus it on like what do they think government should and shouldn't be doing? Where do you know Republicans and Democrats agree on what the role of government yeah. should be? Where do they, I think that's interesting and okay. worth talking about. So like, and then we'll do the millennials fast. Okay, and 2016. Yeah, well, and 2016 I can we can rip through that pretty fast yeah. too because that's I mean Trump's winning again. Okay. okay. Oh my god. Okay, so that was Adam Sharp from Twitter, and I thought that was a really great interview. Very useful to both to see this talk about the strengths of Twitter. I didn't know that. I feel bad. I I think I did call Twitter a hateful wasteland at one point. I think he answered that question very well. Understood what I meant. He he didn't. He didn't acknowledge that. And he he had a very good. I was trying to convey. He had a very good pivot (laughs) pivot there related to that specific story about Westboro Baptist Church. (laughs) No, but that was really that was really good. So let's all now do some Twitter polls as uh, an experiment. See if we can find some new places that they're experimenting. So 2016. Uh, so we still have Trump reigning as king. The question was, is he going to be harmed or helped by the political dy- dynamics of the last week and a half? Seems helped, or at least he's been kept stable. Um, he certainly has not can been hurt. Him. hurt. What can hurt him? Uh, so comparing apples to apples, if, well, if you take a look at the HuffPost pollster average, Donald Trump is is holding steady at 30 percent. Um, ben Carson has been the one that has been slipping as Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz have gained a little ground. Taking a look apples to apples, poll to poll, um, ABC Washington Post showed very little change from Trump and Carson um, month over month. Fox showed Trump up a little bit, showed him up to 28 percent, you know, a bump from 26 percent and showed Carson down five from their last poll. Um, Ipsos Reuters, interestingly enough, they always show Trump just demolishing the field far more than any other poll. Um, And it's pretty consistent. They showed Trump showing an increase up to 37 percent of Republican voters. Um, And they showed Carson declining down to 14 percent. So while some of these polls show the gap at like you know, 10 points or less. The Ipsos Reuters shows Trump's lead over Carson to be 20 points. That's huge. Um, and then Bloomberg Seltzer actually shows things pretty close nationally with Trump at 24 and Carson at 20. Um, and only a very slight change from September, where it's really shown both Trump and Carson getting stronger in equal measure. Um, where Tr- Carson's fate is really happening is in the early states. So take in, in Iowa, um, in late October, Carson was in the high 20s, low 30s. Now he's in the high teens. Um, Cruz, Rubio, and Trump have been the main beneficiaries there as well as, you know, nationally. And Cruz is now in a very strong position in Iowa. Um, Ted Cruz comes out behind Donald Trump, but in 20 uh, with 21 points behind Trump's 30 in the most recent YouGov poll. Um, Cruz ahead of Ben Carson in that poll, which is pretty notable, and Rubio trailing at 11 percent. So this may be Cruz's contest to steal away from the, the Trump-Carson duo if those two fade. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I don't know. Are people responding to Cruz, his performance in some of the debates? Or are they responding to Cruz in his post-Paris rhetoric? Are they 
just moving away from Carson because Carson's had so many questions and gaps. He now just kind of has Carson's a daily had a weird two weeks. He's just had a real tough, tough series of press. So, um, are people responding to that? And so the next place they go is Cruz. I'm not sure we know yet. Um, right. maybe I don't know if we'll know or, you know, I don't know if we'll be able to tell from the public polls exactly. Yeah. And, and there's also this, you know, Cruz keeps trying to position Marco Rubio as an establishment moderate guy, which a lot of establishment moderate people would say is not the case. Right. Um, but th- th- that's that's sort of an interesting dynamic that then plays out when you move to New Hampshire, which is thought of as a place where these establishment moderate candidates tend to be better. So New Hampshire was never really Carson territory anyhow, and Carson has been pretty weak in New Hampshire. Um, and Cruz and Rubio have seen a minimal bump lately. But Donald Trump just dominates New Hampshire. I mean, it continues to undercut this idea that Trump support comes from the base. Trump support does not come from the Republican base. It comes from across the board, very heavily from less engaged, moderate voters who watch a lot of TV. It, his, his base of support is not where you would think based on some of the coverage. Right. And if you actually combined, so thinking about this moderate establishment thing that you know New Hampshire tends to elevate those folks, if you combined Bush, Kasich, and Christie, into one big establishment, hybrid, hawkish candidate, it would still only add up to the low 20s, which is not enough to beat Trump. What if you added Lindsey Graham's support to that group? Lindsey Graham's <laughs> whole five voters. Um, so, you know. No disrespect to Lindsey Graham. So, but that he would, his voters would go with that group probably. But, you know, the, the thing that you may see now in, in operationally is actually seeing some way to combine all those voters. There have been reports that there are folks on the right, whether it's the Kasich Super PAC or other groups coming together and saying, we're going to take Trump on. We're going to find all kinds of ways to do it. Come heck or high water, we're going to make sure he's not the nominee. You know, and and we're going to be unified in our non-Trumpness. And so I don't know if that's really happening. I don't know if we're going to see that happening. That'll be well. And he's exciting to watch. And if he does, and if they do that, won't he just run as an independent? He hasn't. You know, he so he signed that pledge, which of course is worthless. And if you in any way believe that, that Trump signing that pledge meant anything, like. Were they going to take him so, to a Republican court? I mean, there's no – what does that mean? <laughs> Republican court. He already tweeted out, um, you know, Trump's favorite mode of communication, right. that the if Republicans start attacking me, that's not fair. That's not what he agreed to. So, I mean, the idea that Donald Trump gives a lick about the fate of the Republican Party is ridiculous. The idea that he wouldn't run as an independent is ridiculous. The idea, I mean, this is this is probably one of my major frustrations with Trump is that like he has hijacked Republicanism, um, but he's, the idea of him running as an independent. I mean, we have not yet seen, or we have not recently seen any of those three way ballot tests. All we've seen are these two way Trump versus Clinton, right. Rubio versus Clinton, uh, pollsters. Maybe we need to start asking these three pronged tests again. Yep, Rubio, Clinton. Trump. I yeah, I don't think we Cruz, have seen Clinton, it. Clinton, Trump. They've taken him out of They haven't been doing that lately. And I think they need to start doing it again yeah. because I'm telling you, his pledge is, is worthless. Well, you know, those folks in those probably not smoke-filled rooms have been doing those three-way ballot tests in their polls and, you know, and probably are worried. Now, the Democratic side doesn't seem like there's that much action. I mean, it's still basically the same spread between Clinton and Sanders. I think a lot of folks are looking at the race on the left and thinking that it's locked up. Uh, You know, I I see the spread. I see both Clinton and Sanders moving 
at this, you know, at together, right? I they're, mean, they're, they're the spread here. is the same, right? You have Biden folks who moved to Clinton. Plus, Clinton had a few, you know, had some strong weeks. But you have Sanders, who remember has just been up on the air just the last couple of weeks, you know, moving up. Um, so we're going to dig deep in that in, in another episode down the road. Yeah, I, when I first looked at the Huffington Post pollster um, chart, I was I was very confused because it showed. Hillary Clinton increasing and, you know, she had she had maybe like a rougher September, but then had a big bounce back. But then Bernie Sanders numbers have continued. I mean, they have not plateaued. They keep going in the same direction. And I was trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. And of course, it's if you look back about two months ago, all of the polls were asking Joe Biden. Right. So once you so it's not really apples to apples. No. So that explains why that chart looked the way it did. Right. But nonetheless, it's not, you know, it's not quite as a. incendiary on the left. Poll or no poll, it's not as incendiary on the left right now as it is uh, on the right. But that's that's usually the case, I guess. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, Pew put out an interesting study where they asked people about what they thought the appropriate role for government is. So these will clearly be issues that are debated when we move into, well, they're being debated in a primary, but also in a general election context. Um, they tried to study what do people think about the federal government? What do they think the government should be doing and shouldn't be doing? And what do they think the government is doing well? versus poorly. We've talked many times on the show about how angry voters are, how frustrated they are, how they dislike government, et cetera, et cetera. Or they, they think that government's not doing a good job. Doesn't mean they dislike government. Um, but here we we find that actually only 19 percent of voters in this Pew study say they trust the government always or most of the time. 74 percent say that elected officials put their own interests ahead of the country. And 55 percent think ordinary Americans would do better solving problems, which may explain why somebody like a Ben Carson. Right is able to do so well. And also, when we had Neil Newhouse on a couple of weeks ago, what they regularly test in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll is, would you, if you could, would you vote out every single member of Congress, all of them? And like, I think a majority say, yes, I would get rid of every Hit single one. Hit the reset button. Yeah. Uh, so then all, what, what I love about this poll is sometimes we say, do you think government is should be trusted or not? Or, you know, you ask these broad questions. And like, I have a big difference of opinion on do I think the government does a good job defending our country from terrorism versus do I think the government does a good job like regulating certain industries or I mean it's the or space exploration or there are all sorts of different things that people can say well government should do this or shouldn't do that or it's good at this and it's bad at that and this poll finally gets down into those questions so they 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 ask people um what do you think what issues do you think people should there should be a major role for government Keeping the country safe from terror, 94% say yes. Responding to natural disasters, 88% say yes. Ensuring safe food and medicine, 87% say yes. So this is what I think is valuable about this is sometimes I think Republicans, when they say limited government, limited government, like it's very easy to twist that into. Drown it in the bathtub, I think the phrase was. What is in the bathtub? Like drown government in the bathtub. I think that was the Grover Norquist phrase, something like that. That's vivid imagery. Yeah. Um, well, you know, do you want to drown, say, food and medicine in the bathtub? I mean, that's a problem. That Wait, the- hold on. I know I'm going <laughs> bring it back. Hey, yeah. Um, you know, responding to natural disasters. Like, yeah, that sounds like it's pretty sensible for government to deal with. I remember Bobby Jindal gave a response to the State of the Union, the one wherever he said everybody said he was like Kenneth the Page from 30 Rock. And he made fun of volcano monitoring. Like, ha ha ha, the government spends money on volcano monitoring. I'm a limited government conservative, and I'm like, nope, I would really like us to monitor to know when a volcano is going to erupt. And I feel like it's okay that the government does that. Like, if you come to me asking me to cut the budget, 
I'm not cutting the volcano monitoring. This volcano monitoring sponsored by. <laughs> so, so sometimes conservatives back themselves into these corners when they like attack. I want limited government because there are some things that 81 percent of people, 76 percent of people think the government should be maintaining infrastructure. 75 percent think that government should maintain the in, or protect the environment um, where it gets lower is, and much more partisan is on things like ensuring access to health care, helping people get out of poverty. These are things that huge numbers of Democrats think the government should do. But only about a third of Republicans think the government should be in the business of doing. And people are and also we would call this the government being misaligned. Right. It's out of alignment. So more a lot more people think uh, government uh, there's a major role for government for doing things like um, health care or helping people get out of poverty than think that government's actually doing a good job. The only place where they are and where the government is in alignment is in the least important role, at least as voters see it, which is advanced space exploration. And as a Florida Orlando native, what do you think of that? Does that bother you? I am you? so pro-space exploration. Here's my, my space exploration story. Um, so you know how every state has its own quarter? Um, like the, yes. Like every, so I was, I was a high school student, but I was on the committee to pick Florida's symbol. Mm -hmm. And I lobbied to get the space shuttle on there. Now, I am not I am not personally responsible because there were other people on the committee. We narrowed it to 10. Jeb Bush narrowed it to five. Citizens voted. There was a bigger process here. Jeb can fix it. Jeb Jeb can (laughs) fix it. I was a big actually you can dig through Jeb's emails and find emails about the whole quarter committee. Like my name pops up in there in like 2001. It's weird. Um, But anyhow. uh, Yeah. So I am a huge space exploration nerd. Put me in Newt Gingrich's camp on this one. Well, but if Elon Musk is doing it with SpaceX, that's private business doing it. I half should be of in America that, disagrees right? with you. That I that, know, I know. But at least the government is seen as, you know, well, just, a majority think government's doing a good job of exploring yeah, space. Yeah, so that's good. Um, but yeah, so there's stuff. This is a pew, and as always, we'll put it in our show notes. And you know, this is like the question of privacy versus security. That the devil's in the details. You know, it's easy to say we need less government. And it's a little bit harder when you say, well, okay, does that mean we need less volcano monitoring? What about, you know, less safe food and food and drugs? And then it changes. What about government saying offensive? What about government protecting people from offensive language? This was another Pew study that came out um, where they asked respondents, do you believe, which of the following do you believe more? Government should be able to prevent people from saying things that are offensive to minority groups or that people should be able to say these things publicly. Now, two-thirds of Americans believe you should be able to say things that are offensive to minority groups publicly, that that should not be prohibited speech by the government. However, among millennials, the answer is a little bit different. Four out of ten millennials think that the government should be able to prevent people from saying things that are offensive to minority groups, which is a big difference from Gen Xers, Boomers, and the silent generation, where overwhelmingly over seven out of ten think you should have free speech even if it's offensive. And and this made the rounds a lot because it's in, it comes on the heels of a lot of, uh, you know, confrontations on college campuses and discussions over who should speak and who should not speak, which is, you know, to be fair, is kind of a perennial discussion on college. That was true when I, you know, back yeah. in the olden days when I was in college. That's not a new thing, but it does potentially reflect why that can get so heated on college campuses. Kristen, I mean, is this consistent with what you found in your book, The Selfie Vote, available uh... wherever? find books about millennials or so. So I admit that I did not dive into the political correctness 
stuff as much. I, you know, I studied the fact that millennials are not very judgmental and the things that they think should be prohibited are things they think bring harm to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So they're fine with curtail. So that is consistent. So, so it is a bit consistent. And what's fascinating about – well, first of all, this survey was conducted in spring 2015. So this is old data – kind of old data that Pew is bringing up because it's a hot topic in the news. I wonder what the results would be now in light of what's happened at Mizzou and at Yale and at Smith and all these other college campuses where this stuff has really gotten inflamed. The other thing that's interesting about this result is that millennials are the most likely to say government should be able to prevent people from saying things offensive to minority groups slightly more than actual minority respondents themselves. That you have – it's not just – well, millennials are more diverse, which is, is potentially a piece of it, but that it the age gap is bigger than the race gap or the party gap or the education gap or the gender gap on this issue. That's pretty fascinating. Um, and then there was some other research that came out this week, um, a study conducted by Snapchat trying to figure out who engaged Snapchat v- users are. Um, Two-thirds of Snapchat millennial users, according to this poll, say they are likely to vote in the 2016 election, um, compared with 61% of millennials overall. Um, it's self-identified likelihood to vote, which is, of course, you know, whenever you ask people how likely they are to vote, they overestimate it. But it is interesting that people who say they use Snapchat were more likely than the rest of the sample yeah. to say they were likely to vote. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they it, they show here 63% of the millennial Snapchat users are following the election closely. I mean, the argument here is, um, can you use outlets, social media platforms like Snapchat, where you now have some of the candidates are, not all of them, are on Snapchat or Twitter uh, as ways to reach millennials who may not necessarily be watching the news or watching the Sunday shows or reading the newspaper. Speaking of millennials and Snapchat, let's get to that Justin Bieber fave on fave. <laughs> Woo! Like I promised at the beginning. So Adele has been in the news uh, because her new album is out and everybody is feeling all the feels. Uh, she was on Saturday Night Live on Saturday night. Uh, her performance has gone viral for the, the live feed of her, her voice. She did some other thing with the BBC where she hung out with a bunch of Adele impersonators while wearing like a fake nose and chin and then like when they realized who she really was, it was very emotional. This is this That's is the good. stuff I watch on Facebook. That's so good. I wanted to see, has anyone ever done a fave on fave of Adele? And thank you, PPP, my favorite troll poll who I love to hate and hate to love and all of the above. I have a very love-hate relationship with them. Um, they, uh, they got their finger. They got their finger on the pulse. They got their finger on the pulse. So this is actually old data. This is from two and a half years ago. PPP, I would love if you redid this survey to see how things have changed. Um, They tested the favorability ratings of big music stars. Again, this was in the middle of 2013. So this is before, say, Taylor Swift's big 1989 album. But they did find that Taylor Swift and Adele had among the best fave unfaves, that Taylor Swift was viewed favorably by 53%. Her unfaves were 27%. Who has an unfavorable view of Taylor Swift? Uh, and then Adele was viewed favorably by 40, uh, 54% of people, only 18% negative on Adele. Again, I ask, who's negative about Adele? Um, Beyonce had a pretty good fave and fave. Justin Timberlake had good fave and fave. Um, both of them majority favorable. Others did not fare as well. Chris Brown, 57% unfave. Yeah, unfave. Justin Bieber, 54% unfave. And I got to say, Justin Bieber two years ago, I was unfavorable toward. Justin Bieber today, his new music, Margie is looking at me like I'm a crazy person. I will tell you, I'm as You know we're recording this, right? <laughs> I know. I am now on record as saying Justin Bieber 1.0 was teeny bopper from Canada. Ugh, I was not really a fan. He was, it was too young, too young for me. 
to really care about. Justin Bieber, too, was like, I got arrested with drugs and a monkey, Justin Bieber. Not a fan of that, Justin Bieber. <laughs> but I'm telling you, Justin Bieber 3.0, his new music, is pretty good. He, fi- he f- figured it out. Huh? Now my unfaves are going up because <laughs> I just said that. Um, but anyhow, uh, so people, people tweet us some some music recommendations. Tweet us music some, podcast. So the person's not just listening to Justin Bieber. <laughs> my God. Um, speaking of music, by the way, I'm going to tease a little bit of uh, some some data that I'm I'm working on a project. Uh, can't give too many details at this point. Data just came out of the field, but it's going to study voters and some of their musical preferences. And boy, are there some interesting answers in the verbatims in this poll. If you can tweet out this episode to Justin Bieber and have him retweet it. Then oh my I will God. change my mind New about Justin micro Bieber. Assignment. We've changed. The micro assignment has changed. Because then some, I mean, not, you know, I don't know if that's really a, a good audience for us per se. They may not stick with us if they, even if they do He may everything. object to my characterization of 2013 Bieber as. I don't care if he Extradition. <laughs> I stole a monkey, Justin Bieber, but hey. It, it happens. I'm just looking for oh, the wow. RT. I don't need. I don't care. I don't care if he listens to it. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, and moving on to Thanksgiving, since we're recording a couple days before Thanksgiving, there is, of course, lots of Thanksgiving polling out there. So, just to touch on a few, one is from 5:38, the side dishes of America's regions. Now, some of these are confusing to me, like the entire West has salad. I mean, first of all, salad can mean anything. It's not really that they're all eating like spinach salad. And this is like everywhere from New Mexico on West. I mean, this is not just the Pacific Northwest. Are they including like jello salad? Like what's it, what's included? Like, you know, potato salad. I mean, it could be any kind of salad. This map is very neat. Like, I wonder if they just, they carved out regions and then figured out which side dish over indexes. The most in each region, probably right. The, the folks at Five Thirty Eight put this chart out, so maybe if if the if the good if Harry Enten or our our friends at Five Thirty Eight are listening, help us understand this chart. You I will know, say I don't I'm think proud they to listen. Live. I don't think they listen. We're going to have to see. We're going to tag. Oh, this is a test, Harry. I this is a test. Are you listening? I don't think they listen to us. <laughs> <laughs> um, mac and cheese was the number one side dish in the South, which makes me happy. Cornbread in, in like the Texas area and then squash in New England and Mid-Atlantic. Squash. Yeah, of course. Squash, right? I mean, any uh, roasted root vegetables. I guess now I'm showing where I'm from. Roasted root vegetables. That's standard. And I mean, it, it, so any kind of like any kind of pumpkin soup, butternut squash soup. And if you feel like a roast small with like bacon and honey. Oh, that sounds pretty good. It takes 20 minutes. It's no, it's, it doesn't have to be elaborate. And then green bean like casserole it. in the Midwest. And that is probably my least favorite out of all these things. I'll take mystery salad, jello or spinach over green What's bean mystery casserole. mystery salad? Well, the fact that like, I don't know what salad oh, means. The, I'll, the mystery- I'll take whatever that is <laughs> over green bean casserole. <laughs> I like green bean casserole if it has the cream of mushroom soup and all the crispy onions on top. Because then it's mostly just crispy onions and mushrooms with like green beans to try to make you feel like you're having vegetables. But there's more, there's more Thanksgiving polling. Again, thanks to PPP with their fingers on the pulse. Um, and this part makes me sad that... Democrats approve that the president pardoned two turkeys. Republicans don't. Yeah, the question was, I guess because Obama pardoned two turkeys, macaroni and cheese. That was the two names of the turkeys. Um, So, you know, an extra dose of of partisanship part or well, I mean, by pardoning two turkeys, 
It's like an extra dose of, of being kind to animals. Right. Which, Republicans, not a fan. Only 11% approved of Obama's decision to extend clemency. <sighs> Come on, people. To a greater number of turkeys. Um, but And then they also asked, so we talked, on, I think, on the last show, or maybe it was two shows ago. It was at the beginning of November about Christmas creep. And so PPP asked, do you think that Starbucks is waging a war on Christmas? Because the whole Starbucks red cup fiasco was a thing. 21% of Republicans think that Starbucks is waging a war on Christmas. So that's far from a majority. However, folks... There are chocolate advent calendars at Starbucks. That is an edible Jesus countdown. It is like, how can you call it a war on Christmas when you are selling advent calendars there? Yeah. I mean. I digress. End rant. I mean, yeah, I guess I don't really know. Like, I don't think our advent calendars, even religious, they just seem like a fun thing to put in the I mean, I guess I don't know. I guess they were at once, but now they're just more of a... Like, I think of the word Advent, like there are Advent candles in a church. Like, I think of it as it, I mean. But if it's in Starbucks. Even even forgetting the religious side, just Christmas as a holiday. How can you say that it's a war on Christmas when it's a Christmassy treat? Yeah. That's very explicitly Christmas. It's yes. Not, an Advent calendar is not just happy holidays. It's right. a holiday. Right. You're no. counting down to a holiday. Yes. Sorry. I'm getting a little, getting a little overheated. I'm going to step back from this one. Yes. Well, maybe we've persuaded that it's 21% of Republicans. Or maybe, I mean, when I saw your note, I thought, is the fact that it's edible, that it's a chocolate advent calendar, is that the war on Christmas? Is that, like, if that's too, it should Well, then be I've been waging the war on Christmas since I was five, because they're delicious and excellent. Okay, all right. Okay. Um, and Clearly, I need to study up. Uh, so another thing, so uh, yet another way also in which I differ from the rest of the millennial generation, um, they asked about people's feelings toward different Thanksgiving side dishes. So, for instance, pumpkin pie is the top dessert. Generally, voters prefer mashed potatoes to sweet potatoes. People call it stuffing rather than dressing. Um, but then they asked for like a fave unfave on cranberry sauce. And this was the most generationally polarized Thanksgiving side dish that for senior citizens, 80 percent say they like cranberry sauce. For millennials, cranberry sauce is a net negative. Only 42% like it. 48% yeah. don't. Guys, it's shaped like a can. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> and even if it's not shaped by a can, it's still cool. It's like, I mean, millennials, I thought, like sour flavors. Isn't that like one of the other? We studied that. Millennials like sour candy. Exactly. Guys, so get on the cranberry train. It's good for your kidneys. There's a lot of sugar in it. Yes, so yes. Maybe that's not good. But. So maybe so maybe Thanksgiving is really divisive. I am staying in town. Are you going back home, Kristen, or are you staying in town? I am, and I can't wait to go out at midnight on Black Friday and go to the outlets like a crazy person. Oh, really? That's your – Well, but I'm a little frustrated because this year it's not Christmas creep. It's Black Friday creep. Yeah. Some of these stores are opening at 6 o'clock p.m., which is cheating, and it is a violation of the spirit of Black Friday. It I thought they're at- closing in order to make sure people can spend time with their families. That's what's going on. on the, that's what I hear. Uh, I'm uh, the, the outlet malls that I frequent in Orlando mm-hmm. that have some fabulous deals. There is a Prada outlet. I just go and gawk at things, and it just makes me happy to stand mm. there. Um, I, I swear I read online that they're opening at like 6 or 8 o'clock p.m. That, I, am in, I am in post-Thanksgiving bliss mode. Normally, I have my Thanksgiving dinner. Then I take a little break. Then I go to Starbucks at like 11 p.m. when it opens for the crazies. And then I'm out, and I'm hunting for deals. And I'm <laughs> on the warpath, big game hunting, until like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and then I – Peace out. I go home. There is no deal that's going to get me up 
earlier than I need to be <laughs> right now. <laughs> there is basically nothing you can offer me that will make me say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to have less sleep than I would otherwise have. That's a great idea. <laughs> well, if, if you don't, if this is my last show, if you don't hear from me next week, you know what happened. I got swallowed by a horde of shoppers somewhere like in a clearance bin and I'm, I'm looking for help. So if, you, if, you, if I'm not here next week... Black Friday did me in. Oh, well, right, we right. hope that that does, that hope we hope that that's not the case because the show must go on. So we have really just a couple key findings. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the refugee crisis, race, role of government, turkey, stuffing versus dressing, cranberry sauce. Take this week to say something nice about someone of the other party, even or especially if that person is in your family. And while you're at it, say something nice about us on Twitter. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at at Margie O'Meara, at Kaysoltis Anderson, and at The Pollsters. You can also find us on Facebook, where throughout the week we'll post links to the polls that we think are interesting and we hope you'll find interesting too. We're also at thepollsters.com. You can find our show notes and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you so choose. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, guys.